Well, welcome again uh, to our Halloween edition of Wednesday Night Fellowship. We don't do this every week. This is your first week here. It's, this is, yeah, it's Halloween. Um, but it's great to see you. Uh, all semester long, uh, we've been going through a large group series that we're calling 10 Essential Questions. Uh, and these are questions that we have about God and who we are, questions about faith, uh, what it means to live the Christian life, and so on. Uh, and tonight we're coming to question number eight. We're getting closer to 10 every week, right? Question number eight, do I have to go to church? That's the question, right? Do I have to go to church? And when I say it, and when I wrote it down on my paper at home, I couldn't help but hear my six-year-old self saying that. Like, Mom, do we have to go to church? Right? Um, maybe, you, maybe you sounded like that at six. <laughs> uh, I grew up in a nominal Christian home. Uh, I, I heard some Bible stories around bedtime. My family rarely ever went to church. I mean, we rarely went to church. Uh, and when my young uh, sister, Taya, and I, uh, come Sunday, it's time to go to church, we would hide. We, my sister would hide under the bed. I would hide in the linen closet. And we would um, stay there until we were found. I mean, mom and dad would call our names and we would stay huddled in tight. We'd close our eyes because somehow you can't see us if our eyes are shut. And um, going to church, I think for us as a family, always felt like a battle. And I think my parents just got fired of, or got tired of fighting it and they just gave up uh, going. Right? Do we have to go to church? Of all the uh, essential questions that we're asking this semester, this one feels the most personal for me. It's not just that I resisted going to church as a kid. Uh, Even as a 25-year-old exploring Christianity, uh, I resisted the idea too. Like, wasn't it possible for me to just put my faith and trust in Jesus? Like, why did I have to give up some of my Sunday, for example, and hang out with a bunch of people that I didn't know and a bunch of people who didn't vote like me, who didn't listen to the same music as me, who don't have the same hobbies as me? I mean... That just would be awkward. <laughs> just be weird. Wouldn't be fun. Why couldn't I just go and follow Jesus on my own? Why couldn't I make nature my church? Read the Bible when I felt like it and listen to the occasional sermon online. Like, why not that? Why do I have to go to church? Right? Do I have to go to church? Last week, uh, Sarah Jane answered the essential question, what does it mean to grow in our faith? And she spoke to us from Ephesians 5, where the Christian life is described as a walk. You can extrapolate, right, as a journey. Now, when Americans hear the word journey, we hear don't stop believing, but we also hear, (laughs) right, road trip, right? Journey equals road trip. That's like the first thought that comes to our mind. They're synonymous, And the road trip is a quintessential American product, right? It originated here. Um, The road trip combines things that Americans love, and we could even say idolize. Individualism, independence, and novelty. It's almost like um, Captain Planet or Voltron or Power Rangers. Like these things come together to create like this super thing, right? And when we bring individualism together and independence and novelty, you've got a road trip, right? First of all, road trips prize the individual. 
and they take place in a car. No road trip happens in a bus, ever, unless it's a VW bus, right? Then we're talking. But road trips happen in, in a car, not public transportation, right? The road trips in a car, which is an American invention, which symbolizes our individualism and symbolizes our independence. It's a powerful symbol, right? We love our cars, individualism and independence. In his book, uh, On the Road with St. Augustine, here's what author Jamie Smith writes. I love it. It says, when you crest the Tawano Range on I-80 and the salt flats of Utah stretch for hundreds of miles in front of you, it can feel like the vast horizon is an expanse of possibility that keeps unfolding under vaulted skies. Your soul swells with potential. It's why getting your driver's license is a coveted rite of passage, one of the only ones left in our culture. To put the key in the ignition and roll out of the driveway is the on-ramp to independence. There's a third sort of power ranger that's added to the first two to make this ultimate road trip. And it's this, our obsession with novelty. Our obsession with what is fresh and new. This idea that just around the corner is the next best thing. And this idea, this hunger, this thirst for what is novel runs deep, I think, in the American soul and psyche. Some of it has to do with our just growing up in a capitalistic, consumeristic society. A lot of it is the consequence of trillions of dollars worth of advertising. But I think our American geography has something to do with it as well. It's just so large and so expansive and so diverse. There's so much to see, so much to do, so much to explore, and you don't need a passport to do it. All you need is that key and a driver's license. That's powerful. You know, when you watch car ads on television, they're not advertising people driving their cars like we normally do, right? From campus to Shaw's and, I don't know, Bed Bath & Beyond. Most car advertisements are not showing that commute. They're showing you escaping the city limits, Right With pedal to the metal, driving then through rivers and driving in snow and driving in Monument Valley in the desert. Right? The idea here is that you need to break free of your constraints, you need to break free of your routine, and you need to chase what's novel. You need to chase the next best thing. The road trip encapsulates these powerful American ideas, and we import these ideas into our spirituality. Here's where I was going with this. Because, right, the Christian life's a journey, but we import sort of the values of the road trip. Because in our mind, a journey is a road trip. And so we import individualism, independence, and novelty into this idea that the Christian life is a journey. If the Christian life is a journey, it's a journey that I do myself, that I do on my own, the individual. If the Christian life's a journey, it's something that I do independently on my own terms. And I'm always seeking what is fresh and new. If the Christian life is a road trip, the enemy is not sin or the devil. It's dependency. It's routine. That's the enemy. It's boredom. Not being fun. right? Not being awesome. That's the problem. Does Does this hit close to home? Does this sound familiar? Where does all of this lead? Right? Our fierce individualism, 
our need for autonomy and the thirst for novelty leads us inevitably, right? The dad on the road trip with a map, right? If we follow this map where these things go, it leads to loneliness. It leads to alienation and disconnectedness. It leads to lostness and homelessness and ultimately restlessness. Again, Jamie Smith, the road offers unending ribbons of sight and stop-offs whose flashing billboards promise exactly what you're looking for, happiness, satisfaction, joy. But when you reach your destination and you hang out there for a while, the place starts to dim. And what once held your fascination, even for a time, seemed like it was your reason to live, doesn't do it anymore. So spiritually speaking, what do we do? Well, we junk one belief for another, and we just keep chasing the next thing. We ignore the check engine light that says, maybe this isn't right. And we start playing mental tricks on ourselves, saying things like, yo, the journey is the destination. Restlessness is peace. Uprootedness, that's home. These are games. And this is where the Bible entered into my life and speaks to me, and I hope speaks to you. Yes, the Christian life is a journey, but it is not a journey that you're supposed to do alone. Not a journey that is supposed to be driven by selfishness and autonomy and the novel. Those lead to hellhole towns called lostness, loneliness, and restlessness. And Jesus came to rescue you from those things. But how does he do that? Well, the passage that we read tonight speaks to it, right? He, he rescues us from those things in part by connecting us to his body here on earth, which is the church. Now, at this point in time, if I, if I can think back to my 18 to 22 year old self, I would say, time out. I'm with you. I'm up to this point, right? I get that I need community. But how do we make the leap from I need community to I need the church? How do we do that? And here I want us to look at this passage. Let's look at how Paul describes the church in the first two verses uh, of uh, 1 Corinthians. Well, the first two verses of this passage, verses 12 and 13. He writes here, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I'm going to stop there. If we just focus on these few verses, the first thing, and really the most powerful thing that stands out from this introduction to the church is that the church is one body with many parts. This is the dominant uh, sort of analogy or metaphor that this author Paul is using, right? Churches like a body with many parts that look different, right? Ear and eye don't look the same and that act differently. But these different parts find themselves joined together and bound together in one common life. The church brings people together that would otherwise not associate 
in fact, would have nothing to do with each other otherwise. And this is something that is actually very unique. It was unique then. I think it's unique now in our hyper-polarized country where we seem to find ourselves in silos, where the people that we only hang out with are those who look like us and talk like us and vote like us and think like us. That's not the church. The church is not an association of like-minded individuals. It's not a political party where everybody votes the same. And it's not a club where everyone shares the same passion. This is to its glory and sometimes to our frustration. Right? Church is a place of unlikely friendship. RUF, which is just like a little foretaste of what the church can be, is a place of unlikely friendship. Right? It brings people together who might not otherwise meet. In this one body, you have Jews and Greeks, you've got slaves, and you've got free. These are folks who used to go out of their way to avoid each other. Folks who were separated by language, ethnicity, religion, politics, class, economics, you name it. They were divided. But in church, they were coming together as one. As equals, as brothers and sisters even. If you all think our society was polarized, you need to think again. It was way worse then than it is now. But the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus is to bring people together who would otherwise stand apart. This is really illustrated powerfully in our passage tonight. Now, when this works, it's beautiful. And I'd say it's more than beautiful. It's actually a sneak peek into heaven when, when we get this right. It doesn't happen all the time, but when, it, when, we get, when, we're, when it's done right, we, we get a glimpse of what is to come. But when it falls short, and it often does, it is painful, and it is messy. And like you, I'm tempted to say, why bother? Do I have to go to church? We're going to talk about this in a few weeks But church is the first few notes of a symphony that is going to be playing out for all of eternity. And you're like, yeah, the church that I go to is like, yes. Church is the first few notes of a symphony that is going to be playing out for all of eternity. Because if you flip to the very end of the Bible, you see that the heaven that is to come is a city that is filled with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue living together in harmony brought together by Jesus. This is what's going to be going on for all of time. And church is meant to be practice, a training ground or movie trailer for that coming attraction. It's not the whole thing, but it is meant to be, yeah, think of it like training, practice, a trailer. What I'm getting here is that Jesus saved you for that. He saved you from selfishness, alienation, well, selfishness, autonomy, ever chasing the rest, like the novel, restlessness. He saved you for, to be a part of this. But that's not all. It's not just that he saved you for this kind of community. He is saving us present tense through this kind of community too. Now hear me out. By being in a community with people that are very different from you, people that you didn't necessarily choose, people that you might even like to avoid, 
for real, right? Those people exist in your church, right? By being bound in community with folks like that, we actually become more and more like Jesus, not less, more. How? Again, think this through. How do you grow in peace? How are you going to grow in patience? How are you going to grow in compassion? How are you going to become a more forgiving person? You will not grow in these things all by yourself, taking a walk in the woods. And you're not going to grow in these things by surrounding yourself with people who just look like you and think like you and talk like you. You're not going to grow in those things. You're only going to grow in these things when you find yourself surrounded by folks who actually test your patience. That's the only way to grow in patience. You're only going to grow in love and compassion when you're around those who ruffle your feathers and who need your help. And you're only going to be a more forgiving person when you're around those who you actually need to forgive. And people feel the same way about you, right? Church is kind of like a stone tumbler where rocks with sharp edges are brought together and they're mixing and they're mingling. And by bumping up against each other and having to say sorry a lot and having to show forgiveness a lot, we're coming out smoothed and polished. Jesus saved us for a community like this, a a place of unlikely friendship, and he is saving us, present tense, through a community like this as well. I'll admit, being tossed in a stone tumbler is a strange sales pitch for why you should be in church. That doesn't sound very fun, right? And I get it. We could spend a lot more time talking about how sweet church can be, but I've decided to skip the icing tonight and talk about like the real meat and potatoes because I'm dressed like left shark and I love meat and potatoes. <laughs> well, I love meat as a shark, but for, but for real, um, I wanted to talk about this tonight because I think it's these kinds of fears and these kinds of objections that are your reasons for staying away. It's messy. I don't want to be around people like that. It's that reason that actually keeps you hiding under the bed or in the linen closet. And it's why you're trying to live the Christian life on your own. That was true of me. And maybe it's true of you too. The stone tumbler doesn't sound a lot of fun. I get that. But here, can you admit that just because it's not always fun doesn't mean it's not good? Right? Insisting that something always be fun is kind of childish. That's kind of how kids think. You all are growing up, right? College is a big part of that. It's not how grown-ups think, right? Being a dad, for example, isn't always fun. Like changing diapers, getting poo on your hands, like sleepless lights, that's not fun. <laughs> but I wouldn't give it up for anything to be Will. Like being Will's dad is the greatest. It's really good. Being married isn't always fun. I love Megan and Megan loves me, but we don't always like each other, right? We annoy each other, right? Just like your roommate annoys you and you annoy them. Like we fight. But through marriage, I'm learning how to love and to be loved in profound ways. It is really good, even though it's not always fun. 
And following Jesus, living the Christian life, belonging to the body of Christ, like being in the stone tumbler, if you want to think of it that way, it's not always fun, but that doesn't make it not good. It is good, and it is for your good. We started with the question, do I have to go to church? And the answer is yes. But it's not for the reasons that you might think. It's not so that you can check a box and be like, now God owes me, or maybe now God loves me. Because he loved you before you went. He loved you before you went. It's why. He loves you, and that is why he connects you to the church. You don't go to church to get him to love you. He loves you, and that is why he connects you to the church. Because it's here in the body of Christ that you are going to find life. It is here in the body of Christ that you are going to find rest for your weary souls. It is here in the body of Christ that you are going to experience grace and grow into Christ-likeness. And it's here in the body of Christ that you can begin to practice cross-cultural love. Jesus saved you for this, and he is saving you through this. And I, for one, would love to welcome you in. Let's pray.